Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, I'm Scott Chesworth, and welcome to the ancient world. Episode 14, In the Midst of the Seas. For thousands of years, the Phoenician port cities of Byblos, Sidon, and Tyre had commanded the best natural harbors of the eastern Mediterranean, and had used that advantage to generate the wealth, power, and prestige that secured their lands from foreign invasion and conquest. Civilizations had come and gone, ruling dynasties faded into obscurity, but through it all the Phoenician rule remained unchanged. Ply the seas of the eastern Mediterranean and retrieve the resources and goods most valued by the great powers of the Near East. The Phoenician territory of the Levant, a narrow strip of coastline hemmed in by mountain ranges to the west and the Mediterranean to the east, was probably considered prime beachfront property by every landlocked empire that arose in the region, and Phoenician history would probably have been extremely brief if it were left as a matter for kings and armies to decide. Fortunately for the Phoenicians, empires tended to crave crucial resources and exotic goods even more than knockout views and preserving the eastern Mediterranean maritime trading system meant not killing the golden goose that kept these commodities flowing to their shores. Bully? Yes. Intimidate? Certainly. But play too heavy a hand, and, well, let's just say boxwood and small female monkeys don't grow on trees, you know? Oh, wait, I guess boxwood does, but you get the point. During the Late Bronze Age, the Phoenician maritime trading circuit included Cyprus, Rhodes, the Cyclades, mainland Greece, Crete, the Libyan coast, and Egypt. With most of their competitors and any great power oversight eliminated by the chaos of the Bronze Age collapse, the Phoenicians under King Hiram quickly moved to expand their domain. By the early 9th century BC, under the leadership of King Ithobaal I of Tyre, Phoenicia had extended its combined land and sea trading network into Anatolia, Armenia, the Ionian Islands, Syria, Judah, Israel, Arabia, and much of the Near East. A new southern harbor was built at Tyre to handle the vast increase in goods passing through the busy seaport. It was nicknamed the Egyptian Harbor, since much of the trade it conducted was in service to the resurgent power of the Libyan ruling dynasty. So, how did the nuts and bolts of the Phoenician trade network operate? 
Well, the first Phoenician colonies were little more than trading outposts, where a small number of merchants, artisans, and soldiers lived year-round, exchanged goods with the local population, refitted ships, guarded the port, and collected resources from the interior for shipment back to their home cities. Such Phoenician enclaves typically relied on the goodwill of the native population for both their protection and the success of their operations. Over time, these trading outposts often grew into thriving mixed communities of Phoenicians and natives. However, in the aftermath of Asher Nasserpal II's visit to the region in the 9th century BC, and subsequent Neo-Assyrian demands for ever greater resources to support their growing empire, a more aggressive strategy was sanctioned by the Phoenician kings, the direct colonization of foreign lands. The first such Tyrian colony was founded, probably around the mid-9th century BC, at Kidion, the site of an old Mycenaean Greek outpost on the island of Cyprus. Cyprus was important mainly for its rich copper deposits, located deep in the island's interior, and the main function of the colony was to extract the copper ore for smelting at coastal sites and eventual shipment back to Tyre. Another factor in siting the colony was its fertile hinterland, which was used to grow agricultural produce for export to the home city. In Kidion, and several other colonies that followed quickly on its heels, the Phoenicians no longer sought the aid and protection, or even permission, of the locals to conduct their business. Instead, they put down stakes, declared whatever land they claimed as sovereign Phoenician territory, and installed a Phoenician governor directly answerable to their king. Unsurprisingly, this new dynamic was not looked upon favorably by the native inhabitants, but the Phoenicians had a solution for this as well. When the people of Kidion revolted, the Tyrian king crushed the rebellion through the use of overwhelming military force. The armies of Phoenicia might not be up to sparring with the great powers of the Near East, but they were more than adequate to suppress a few native insurrections. Phoenician kings also had less lethal arrows in their quiver. As I mentioned previously, one of King Hiram's innovations was promoting worship of the Tyrian city god Melkart, partly to undercut the power of the traditional priesthood of Baal, but also to rally his people around his program for Tyrian maritime expansion. Later Tyrian kings also saw the value of this approach, and in the late 9th century BC, a new temple dedicated to Melkart and his consort Astarte was constructed at Kidion. Following its construction, Melkart worship was used as a means to infuse the community, both Phoenician and native, with an appreciation and respect for traditional Phoenician religion and culture, and to bind the colony more tightly to its mother city. The tactic was apparently effective. Kidian coins featuring Melkart's image were still in use in the region 400 years later. If Ashur Nasserpal's visit had pushed Phoenicia into adopting a more aggressive posture, the pressure was ramped up further by the actions of the young and energetic Assyrian king who ruled at the dawn of the 8th century BC, Adad-Nirari III. Despite the weakened condition of the Assyrian state in the aftermath of the civil war between his father and uncle, 
Adad-Nirari III set himself to the task of restoring the empire to the glories it had known during the early reign of his grandfather, Shalmaneser III. This meant, first and foremost, reminding the lands of Syria and Canaan that Assyria was still a master to be feared. In 796 BC, Adad-Nirari III led Neo-Assyrian forces back into Syria. The pretext for the campaign may have been the death in that year of King Hazael of Aram Damascus, who, if he had not served as an impediment to Assyrian westward expansion, had at least been annoyingly effective in denying Assyria the conquest of the important regional city of Damascus. Hazael's son, Ben-Hadad III, provided only token resistance before folding like a card table at Adad-Nirari's approach. The Neo-Assyrian army marched into Damascus in triumph, and Ben-Hadad III was forced to give unconditional submission and tribute to the Assyrian king. The capture of Damascus was the tipping point for Aramean power in the region, which would never again recover its former strength. Perhaps the only parties more overjoyed at the taking of Damascus than Adad-Nirari himself were the perpetually Aram-whipped kingdoms of Israel and Judah. The final few years of King Hazael's rule had been difficult ones for both Hebrew kingdoms. King Jehoash of Judah, sole survivor of his grandmother's bloody purge, had been forced to relinquish both land and treasure to the Arameans. But when, in 796 BC, his 40-year reign was finally ended, it was not through the machinations of Hazael, but at the hands of his own servants, who assassinated him in outrage over his execution of a high priest of Yahweh. Even as his son, King Amaziah, began his reign by punishing the murderers of his father, he must have been relieved at the prospect of ruling over a kingdom finally free from the specter of Aramean oppression. Israel, meanwhile, had passed through the rule of King Jehu and his son Jehoahaz, whose defining act may have been leading the people of Samaria in the worship of not a golden calf per se, but instead a cultic pole dedicated to the Sumerian by way of Ugarit mother goddess Asherah. Wow, there's rebelling against your dad, and then there's rebelling against your dad. By the time Jehoahaz's son, Joash, had ascended the throne in 798 BC, Israel was also under constant predation by the Aramaeans. So when Adad-Nirari III conquered Damascus in 796 BC, it was considered, quite literally, the answer to his prayers. Both kings probably tripped over themselves sprinting for the Assyrian camp to give thanks and well wishes, along with tribute and submission, to the great Assyrian king, but they were certainly not alone in doing so. Adad-Nirari III made it clear that the conquest of Damascus was only an illustrative example, to show the rest of Syria and Canaan what might be coming their way if annual tribute payments from the region did not resume probably at increased levels and including back payments and penalties. The lesson was effective. Along with Israel and Judah, Phoenicia, Philistia, Moab, Edom, and the Neo-Hittite states all gave submission and tribute to the Assyrian king. 
Adad Narari III knew that, of all his vassals, Phoenicia was best equipped to keep the empire supplied with the steady flow of the critical resources it needed to function effectively, most notably silver for the payment of troops and iron for their weapons and armor. In this spirit, Adad-Nirari assured the current Tyrian king, Pygmalion, that the Assyrian hand would continue to be light upon his kingdom, on the condition that Phoenicia devote its energies and considerable maritime skills to seeking out and obtaining new sources of these precious commodities. Fortunately for Pygmalion, the Phoenicians had already laid much of the groundwork to fulfill their half of the bargain. In addition to Kidian, by the late 8th century, Phoenician colonies and trading posts had been established at Paphos and Salamis on Cyprus and Camos on Crete, as well as on the Aegean islands of Rhodes, Melos, Thassos, and Kythera. But the Tyrian king knew that it was in the distant lands of the west that the Phoenicians must truly seek their fortunes. In anticipation of this eventuality, Pygmalion had already established a number of more far-flung outposts to serve as a foundation for even greater Phoenician ventures. The central Mediterranean had, for centuries, been home to an active maritime trading circuit, centered on the island of Sardinia and extending to central Italy, the Aeolian Islands north of Sicily, and westward as far as the Iberian Peninsula as well as eastward as far as Crete and even Cyprus. The indigenous Nuragic people had dominated Sardinia since the early Bronze Age, developing a complex society whose artifacts range from intricate bronze figures to the monumental stone tower fortresses, or Nuragae, that gave the culture its name. Renowned for their metalworking skills, the Sardinians had long supplied bronze swords, daggers, and axes to the other advanced societies of the region, including Mycenaean Greece, and also crafted votive bronze boat models that honored their strong ties to the sea. The bronze trade served to integrate Sardinia with other cultures spanning the Mediterranean, from tin-rich Iberia to the west to copper-rich Cyprus in the east. But the Sardinians did not take to the sea for trade alone. By the late Bronze Age, Sardinian seafaring raiders, known to Egypt as the Sheridan or Sharduna, were apparently formidable enough as both warriors and sailors to plunder the Levantine coast with near impunity. By the late 9th century BC, Phoenicia had established a colony in the northwest of Sardinia, drawn by its lucrative deposits of precious metals already being mined by the indigenous Nuragic communities. In contrast to the colony of Kidion on Cyprus, the Phoenicians on Sardinia practiced a more collaborative approach, living as part of a mixed community and cooperating in joint commercial ventures with the natives. It was this Sardinian colony that first brought the Phoenicians into contact with the cultures of central Italy, most notably the Etruscans, on whom more shortly. It was likely also via the Sardinian trading network that the Phoenicians had their first dealings with the land of Tarshish, or Tartessus, the ancient name for the region of southern Spain. In fairly short order, the Phoenicians entered into lucrative trade agreements with local Tartessian elites in order to gain access to the country's vast mineral wealth, particularly iron and silver from the interior. 
In return for these resources, the Phoenicians provided Tartessian rulers with jewels, ivory, bronze statues, pottery, unguents, and perfumes. But it was on the north coast of Africa, to the west of Egypt and Libya, that the seeds planted by King Pygmalion of Tyre would bear their most legendary fruit. As with other great and powerful cities, the Phoenician colony of Carthage had its own foundation myth, which probably contains at least some elements of truth. According to the legend, the story of Carthage begins with the passing of the Tyrian king Matan I, grandson of Ithobaal, in 821 BC. Matan supposedly stipulated that his two children, Pygmalion and Dido, also known as Alyssa, but I'll stick with Dido to avoid confusion, should rule jointly over Phoenicia. However, with the backing of Tyrian elites, Pygmalion seized the throne for himself and moved quickly to eliminate all rivals. While he could not bring himself to kill his sister, Dido, he did kill her husband, Zikar Baal, the powerful and wealthy high priest of the Tyrian city god, Melkart, who also happened to be their uncle. Dido was apparently successful in convincing her brother that she bore him no ill will over his, you know, seizing their joint throne for himself and, you know, killing her husband and all. Hey, water under the bridge, right? Insert nervous laughter. But in secret, she began plotting, along with other disaffected Tyrian nobles, to flee the city, along with her dead husband's substantial hoard of gold, which Dido had so far managed to conceal from her brother. When the plan was finally executed, the party made first for Cyprus, where they were joined by a high priest of the goddess Astarte and eighty sacred prostitutes of her order to serve as wives for the fleeing nobles. Their next stop was the Tyrian colony of Utica, far to the west along the North African coast. Despite their warm welcome there, Dido and her party had already made plans to establish a colony of their own, and entered into negotiations with the local Libyan king Hyarbas for this purpose. Wary of ceding too much territory to the Phoenicians, Hyarbas famously agreed to sell them only as much land as could be covered by an ox hide. So, Dido and party promptly cut a hide into very thin strips, then used the strips to circumscribe a hill, known as the Bursa, that would serve as the heart of their new colony. Oh, those rascally Phoenicians. Several years later, when Carthage had grown into a stable and prosperous colony, King Hyarbas returned to threaten its destruction, unless Dido agreed to marry him. Torn between her love for her people and her fidelity to her dead husband, Dido first had a pyre built to make sacrifices to appease her husband's spirit. But once the pyre was fully ablaze, Dido climbed atop it and stabbed herself with a sword, unable to accede to Hyarbas's demands. Despite, or perhaps because of, her sacrifice, the Libyan king spared the colony, which went on to grow and thrive over the succeeding centuries. A nice story indeed, but most of it originated long after the city had been founded. The origin of some elements can be decoded. The part about the oxhide probably stems from the fact that the name for the city's central hill, the bursa, is similar to the Greek word for oxhide. However, it's far more likely that the hill's name actually comes from the Akkadian word birtu, meaning fortress. More firmly established are the colony's links with Tyre, 
Later records commonly refer to the citizens of Carthage as sons of Tyre, and the worship of the Tyrian gods Melkart, Astarte, and Eshmoon was known to predominate in the colony. There was even a later tradition established where flotillas from Carthage made a yearly voyage to Tyre to give a tithing of their earnings to their home city and its god. The traditional date for the foundation of Carthage, from the Phoenician Kart Hadasht, or New City, is given alternately as either 825 BC, or 72 years before the foundation of Rome, or 814 BC. Archaeologically, the earliest occupation layers currently extend back as far as 760 BC, but the excavations are still a work in progress. Regardless of the date of its founding, the site of Carthage could not have been better chosen, lying as it did in the heart of both the north-south trading circuit, centered on Sardinia, and the east-west route between the Levant and southern Spain. Given this advantage, it's no wonder that the colony grew over the next century to become the most prominent and powerful in the Phoenician world. Now that we've got Carthage founded, let's return to the central Mediterranean maritime circuit, the island of Sardinia, and the Etruscans. Commonly considered the first advanced civilization of Western Europe, the Etruscans were the successors of the early Iron Age Villanova culture of Etruria, located in modern Tuscany. This location blessed them with bountiful farmland, valuable deposits of iron and copper ores, and good natural harbors, all of which encouraged them to become maritime traders. Each Etruscan city was an independent state with its own king, but they were loosely federated into a body called the Etruscan League. By the 8th century BC, the Etruscans shared the Italian peninsula with two other peoples who would grow to later prominence. The first were the Italics, who were divided into eight main tribal groups and had migrated into north and central Italy around 1000 BC. The second were the Messapians, who had migrated from coastal Illyria at roughly the same time and had settled in the heel of Italy. Of these peoples, only the Etruscans were sufficiently advanced to participate in the regional trade network, which they interfaced via the mixed Phoenician Nuragic metalworking center of Sant'Imbania in northwestern Sardinia. It's also at Sant'Imbania, as well as the nearby colony of Pithecusa on the island of Ischia, that the Phoenicians first interacted with another regional newcomer, also trying to establish its own set of commercial and colonial networks. Although, to be fair, newcomer really doesn't seem like a realistic term to apply to the Greeks. Whatever the cause of Mycenaean Greek decline during the Bronze Age collapse, sea peoples, internal conflict, invasion from the north, or all of the above, Greece had basically descended into a period of oblivion and obscurity that spanned the next several hundred years. The legend the later Greeks told themselves was that the exiled sons of Heracles, the Heraclids, in the form of a people known as the Dorians, had returned to Greece after several generations to reclaim dominion over territories Heracles had held in the Peloponnesus. While the historicity of the Dorian invasion of Greece has never been firmly established, the tale of the returning Heraclids served the Greeks as a means to justify the loss of their once-glorious civilization. After all, who could stand up to the sons of Heracles, right? 
In the aftermath of the collapse, once mighty Mycenaean hilltop fortresses were reduced to rubble, and the Bronze Age advances of palaces, scripts, and a widespread Mediterranean trading network were lost. The Aegean power vacuum invited seafaring civilizations from elsewhere in the Mediterranean, particularly the Phoenicians, to take the lead in regional trade and colonization. During this Dark Age, which lasted from roughly 1200 to 800 BC, the Greeks reverted to small chiefdoms run by petty lords, with wealth measured not in gold, bronze, or palaces of stone, but in the more humble currencies of cattle, sheep, and pigs. The rule of these chiefdoms seldom extended farther than over the immediate family, extended family, and possibly a few retainers or slaves a far cry from the heights of Minoan and Mycenaean Greek culture and influence. No luxury goods were found in Greek tombs dated to this period, reflecting the severe contraction in the Greek material culture and standard of living. Greek writing, in the form of the Mycenaean Linear B script, virtually disappeared, reflecting both the lack of goods to keep tallies of and the lack of desire to keep other records of any kind. Greek representational artwork also died out, probably for many of the same reasons. Hand in hand with their culture, the Greek population also suffered a precipitous drop during this period, with archaeological studies showing a decline from 340 mainland settlements down to 40. The loss of population was at least partly due to the collapse of the Mycenaean Greek palace economy. In the absence of this complex redistribution system, integrated agricultural production suffered, and many settlements could no longer survive, relying only on their local resources. This in turn led to mass migrations of Greeks into other lands, most notably into the east. Based on a linguistic map, it's been established that during the Dark Age, much of the mainland Greek population migrated to the west coast of Anatolia, a region in the midst of its own Dark Age following the collapse of the Hittite kingdom. Despite their dislocation, these Ionian Greeks strove to maintain their cultural and linguistic ties with their mainland Greek brothers. But perhaps more interesting was what these Greek migrants shared with the native inhabitants of their new home. After all, coastal Anatolia was the precise location where the quasi-mythical battle between Mycenaean Greece and Troy had been fought. Now, centuries later, descendants of both Greeks and Trojans, living side by side, came to share a common sense of history, and, in particular, of being heirs to mighty Bronze Age civilizations, of which virtually nothing remained but heroic stories and mysterious ruins. Perhaps unsurprisingly, the main form of entertainment during this period came by way of wandering poets, who sang tales of this richer and more glorious age. Most famous were the cycle of stories revolving around the Trojan War, which started being told around 1100 BC and slowly formed the framework of a common story over the centuries that followed. The final written versions of the Iliad and the Odyssey would be a product of this cultural blending, particularly since the author, Homer, was a citizen of the Ionian Greek city of Smyrna. 
It was in the 10th century BC that the first embers of a Greek resurgence could be seen to smolder. Around this time, the Greek island of Euboea managed to reforge at least some of the links of an internal Greek trading network. This development led several Euboean settlements, such as the village of Lefkandi, to become wealthy, at least in comparison to their Greek contemporaries. It also attracted the attention of the premier maritime traders of the age, the Phoenicians. Phoenician interest was heightened by the high quality of the local Euboean pottery, and they quickly established a trade network to facilitate its shipment to Near Eastern markets in exchange for luxury items of gold and bronze. Sometime during the 9th century BC, in support of this effort, the Greeks of Euboea established what may have been the first Greek colony at Almina on the Syrian coast, just north of the ancient city of Ugarit. It was here, in a mixed colony of Greeks and Phoenicians, that Dark Age Greece took its first tentative steps toward reconnecting with the Near East and the greater world beyond. Toward the end of the 9th century BC, the Greeks of Euboea also established a colony at Pithecusa on the island of Ischia in the Bay of Naples. Like Almina in Syria and San Ibenea in northwest Sardinia, this colony was a mixture of locals, Phoenicians, and Greeks. Following the Phoenician example, the Eubeans geared their colony toward the extraction of resources, particularly iron, which were then shipped to the Etruscan kingdoms of central Italy in exchange for luxury items. In contrast to the fierce rivalry that later developed between the Phoenicians and Greeks, these first colonies appear to have been essentially cooperative ventures. At Pithecusa, this was, at least in part, due to the complementary nature of their objectives. Phoenician interest in Etruria was primarily driven by its desire not for luxury items like the Greeks, but for its abundant supplies of silver needed to satisfy Neo-Assyrian demands. As the 8th century BC progressed, the ongoing demands of empire led to a general increase in the level of Mediterranean maritime trade. This trade, in combination with intensified local agricultural production, served to usher in a period of increasing wealth and prosperity throughout mainland Greece. After centuries spent mired in darkness, the Greeks were formally moving into a new phase of their history, later termed the Archaic Period. It's also referred to as the Orientalizing Period, since it was a time when Greece imported many cultural, religious, and artistic elements from the Near East, a product of both their interactions with the Phoenicians as well as the pervasive influence of the Neo-Assyrian Empire. Of all Near Eastern imports, perhaps the most game-changing on the Greek path to cultural recovery was their adoption of the Phoenician alphabetic script. The first examples of ancient Greek writing, dated to between 770 and 750 BC, were identified on pottery shards excavated at the settlement of Lefkandi on Euboea. The Greek writing is clearly adapted from the contemporary Phoenician script, and it makes sense that a Greek settlement with a long-standing trade relationship with Phoenician merchants would be an optimal environment for the alphabet's creation. The Greeks would later modify the script to include vowels, enabling them to reproduce their spoken language precisely. 
Renewed Greek prosperity promoted the rise of a number of powerful Greek city-states, or Peleus, including Athens, Corinth, Sparta, and Thebes. Within a few short decades, the resurgent cities of Greece would embark on a widespread program of colonization that would put them into direct competition with the Phoenicians. But that's a discussion for a later episode. For the first half of the 8th century BC, the Phoenicians remained the sole masters of the Mediterranean and continued to establish new commercial outposts on its islands and along its shores. From their Sardinian colonies in particular, resource-rich and centrally located, they continued to strengthen the central and western Mediterranean trading circuits and enrich themselves, while also supplying the materials craved by their Assyrian overlords. The Etruscan kingdoms of central Italy also continued to profit, from the trade itself, but even more significantly, from the ongoing interactions with the older and more advanced cultures of the Phoenicians and Greeks. Of particular influence on the Etruscans were the tales of the Greek-Trojan War cycle, stories that would eventually be woven into their own history in order to give it an extra sense of gravitas. According to the later legend, the Etruscan kingdom of Alba Longa, located near Lake Albano in the region of Latium, had even been founded by the Trojan prince Aeneas, fleeing the destruction of his home city. What a totally amazing coincidence. Anyway, as the legend continued, in the 8th century BC, a vestal virgin of Alba Longa, named Rhea Silvia, became pregnant a sacrilege to local custom whose punishment was being buried alive. Rhea Silvia claimed that her child had been fathered by the war god Mars, but the current king, Amulius, was having none of it. Of course, he had a personal axe to grind, as Rhea Silvia was the daughter of his brother Numitor, whose throne he had usurped. Rhea Silvia's life was spared, but her twin sons were taken by King Amulius at birth and hurled into the flooded Tiber River. They washed ashore downstream, where they were subsequently found and suckled by a she-wolf, who had lost her own cubs of the flood. The twins, named Romulus and Remus, were then raised by humble local villagers, ignorant of their own royal, even divine, nature. To do a callback to episode 3, this is all pretty much basic heroic mythology 101, and very similar to the origin myths of Sargon of Akkad, the Hebrew Moses, or even Superman, though the wolf suckling is a nice local touch. The legend reaches its climax when the deposed king Numitor, questioning Remus about a local cattle theft, became aware of his true identity and press-ganged him into joining his rebellion against his brother, King Amulius. Romulus, learning of his own brother's abduction, gathered a posse of locals and pursued the rebels to Alba Longa. Once there, King Amulius was taken by surprise by both the rebellion itself and by the revelation of the surviving children. In his state of distraction, he was killed by Numitor, who reclaimed the throne of Alba Longa. The twins were then allowed to leave the city, but, now aware of their true ancestry, decided that they were meant for greater things, and would someday found a city of their own, which they did, legendarily, in the year 753 BC, at a place called Rome. 
Similar to the Phoenician city of Carthage, Rome's foundation myth was established long after the events it portrayed, and, as with Carthage, the origin of some elements can be decoded. The fact that the Latin word for wolf, lupa, can also mean prostitute hints at a more realistic, if less dramatic, upbringing for the founding twins. Also, there was an established Latin tradition of exiling the firstborn, both animal and human, to found a new city once a particular settlement had grown too large. Other elements may also be rooted in fact. Archaeological evidence suggests that Rome was ruled by Etruscan kings from Alba Longa for a period of roughly 200 years. Also, in keeping with the legend, the city's early accretion of both citizens and wealth likely did come via the conquest and absorption of the surrounding tribes. In reality, the great and powerful city of Rome began as a humble Latin village of round mud huts on the banks of the Tiber River, predated by several older settlements in the surrounding hills. The city's location conferred upon it a wealth of benefits. It was located in the center of Italy and at the lowest crossing point of the Tiber River. The river provided a safe border on one side and hills provided defense on the other. The city also lay at the crossroads of prosperous overland routes for both metal and salt traders and was near enough to the sea to benefit from maritime trade while being sufficiently far away for protection from coastal pirate raids. Prior to its official founding as a city, some basic communal features were likely present, such as a simple marketplace and altars to various local gods, the early seeds of Rome's conservative religious tradition. Archaeological excavations also confirm that the Palatine Hill, central to Rome's earliest incarnation, was fortified in the mid-8th century BC, an early symbol of the city's budding militarism. These initial defenses likely consisted of a network of ditches, earthen ramparts, and wooden pickets, modest in comparison to a Mycenaean fortress, but formidable enough to its neighbors. By around 750 BC, the city was certainly showing some signs of promise, but of course no one looking down on the tiny Latin settlement from one of the seven hills could possibly envision the true scope of what the future would bring. Wow, if I'm not mistaken, I've just managed to found both Carthage and Rome in a single episode. No wonder I'm so beat. Next episode, we return to the Near East and North Africa to catch up on events in Egypt, Babylonia, Syria, Canaan, Urartu, and, of course, Assyria. All this next time on The Ancient World.